0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we're joined by Greg Colburn, who is co-author with Clayton Aldern of Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns, new from the University of California Press. Greg, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. Uh, so if you would, start us off, tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you do and how it is you came to write this book.
1: Thank you. Well, I am a, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Real Estate at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I'm a second career academic. My first career was in finance. I spent a lot of time in the markets and then went back and got my PhD in public policy with a focus on housing policy and, uh, and then was fortunate enough to, to land the position uh, here at UW. And given the acute housing uh, crisis that we have in this region, um, I've spent a lot of time in the community uh, working on issues related to housing affordability and homelessness. And so that's how I spend a lot of my time uh, in addition to teaching courses related to housing policy and urban economics and some topics like that.
0: Um, So... So in some ways, right? you're your your the title of the book is itself the spoiler, right? That's exactly, right. Uh, and that that you're clearly going to make the argument to us that as we try to make sense of homelessness in the United States uh, and variation from place to place, that that where we ought to be paying most of our attention is housing. But as you point out, it is I think fair to say that when we look at maybe public and political debate, that there are a lot. Of other kinds of explanations that people offer for why people are homeless. So I wonder if we might not begin by ticking through some of those usual explanations and have you. Talk a little bit about the way in which you systematically examine and evaluate each of those popular responses. So, uh, so you've got uh, poverty, unemployment, mental health, drug use, race, uh, luck, local politics, welfare magnets, and weather. Uh, so, why don't we talk about each of those briefly? Talk about why why should we not think about this as merely a poverty problem? Sure. Um, well, I'm going to just start briefly by, by, and
1: I maybe failed to do that in your first question, but just talk about the motivation here briefly, which is, as I was in meetings throughout the community, I kept hearing all of these other explanations. And um, in, in four years or five years of doing this, I began to realize that I just didn't think that we had an understanding of what the underlying driver of this crisis was. And as a result, our policy responses were a little scattershot. And so the the, the causes or explanations that you just outlined are are... You know, among the many that I've heard over and over in, in these meetings, and that that happens with policymakers, it happens with uh, philanthropists, it happens with just people in my social circle who happen to care about what's going on in Seattle. And so, um, both Clayton and I felt strongly that we wanted to make sure that we addressed each of these issues um, in 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 some detail because they are very persistent and 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 somewhat um, intuitive explanations for the crisis. And so, if we start with poverty, um, I, neither Clayton nor I would ever argue that poverty isn't a isn't a, a a cause of homelessness. And what you'll see in the book, and and as as I'm sure you saw as as you read um, the draft, um, explanations at the individual level sometimes differ from explanations at the ecological level or at the community level. And so we know that poverty is a risk factor for homelessness. And if either you or I are experiencing poverty, we're, we're far more likely to experience homelessness. But when we look at homelessness from city to city, and we include about 30 cities in our sample for the book, places with the highest rates of poverty have some of the lowest rates of homelessness. And so it seems to be a counterintuitive result. If we if we know that poverty causes homelessness at the individual level, why would high rates of poverty not cause high rates of homelessness? And And the point that we reach is that because at the community level, we don't believe that poverty rates are the driver of homelessness. There's another potential explanation there. And if they were, if poverty was the driver at the community level, we should see really large homeless populations in communities like St. Louis and and Cleveland and Detroit, where the poverty rate is far higher than what you would see in, in relatively affluent cities like San Francisco, New York, or, or Seattle.
0: Um, right. And as you point out, right, it's sort of one of the easiest ways to see why that doesn't hold up well. It's got San Francisco has some of the highest homelessness rates in the United States, but very low rates of poverty and the exact reverse for Detroit. That's right. Um, right. So similar. So talk to us a little bit about why we shouldn't focus in on unemployment as a principal explanation for what's going on here. Well, it's, it's basically the exact same
1: argument, which is um, right. unemployment is um, is a risk factor uh, for for homelessness, but again, when you plot unemployment, um, city to city and look at variation, um, variation in rates of unemployment don't uh, explain, uh, provide very little explanatory power for variation in rates of homelessness. And so- It just doesn't line up, right? It just doesn't doesn't line up. And, And so one of the arguments that we make Um, And which apply to a number of the explanations that we're going to tick through here is that a number of these issues that we identify as causes of homelessness at the individual level, I would consider them to be precipitating events, meaning in the right set of circumstances, in the right context, unemployment can absolutely lead to homelessness. But in another context, it may not. Which is why I think this this there's something else going on here. Why these precipitating events? For example, domestic violence is a cause co- is a cause of, of homelessness. Um, but uh, if a if a wealthy person experiences domestic violence, he or she might leave that situation and find more stable housing, safer housing, and it doesn't lead to homelessness. But for the wrong person in the right in the wrong circumstance, such an event, a precipitating event like uh, domestic violence, might produce that outcome. And so, when we focus on these individual factors, we lose sight of what is going on at, at the more macro level, and, and that's this uh, the, the, you know, the the housing costs that, that we talk about. But we can continue on on, on these individual factors to, to highlight that. Uh, point, even. Um,
0: yeah, let's just, just like, move through because, and I think the next one's mental health and drug use. I think probably fair to say that, in sort of the, the public conception, these are the ones that tend to uh, uh, land on the top of people's list. And I wonder if this might be a place to talk a little bit about listeners who may not be aware of when we talk about homelessness. Uh, what are the categories of people that we are talking with uh, and uh, talking about, excuse me uh, and then similarly sort of how do we think about the role that that perhaps undiagnosed and untreated mental illness or substance use disorder might play in propensity for becoming homeless? Sure.
1: so when we uh, and the number that we're using in our book comes from uh, from HUD the point in time counts which is uh, each community in the country, uh, does a, a census in essence of, of people experiencing homelessness and their estimates involved in that because it is a difficult population to count. Uh, and when we roll up those numbers at a national level, we end up with with the the total estimates. And so for each of the cities, we'll look at the census for that particular community or county um, as as the total population of people experiencing homelessness. And that includes two categories, um, sheltered and unsheltered. And so the sheltered count would be all people who are residing within uh, public or private shelters, if they're included in the count, um, it, plus people experiencing unsheltered homelessness, would be, which would be those uh, people living in tents in encampments on the street, uh, living in vehicles or in other places um, not fit for human habitation, uh, which is the, the definition from HUD. And so when you, when you add those two categories, you get the total uh, count of people experiencing homelessness. And so when we when we think about um the relationship between homelessness and mental illness and, and substance use, um, a lot of that is framed uh, from the experience, especially in cities on the West Coast where we have uh, far more unsheltered homelessness, that uh, we experience and we confront people experiencing chronic, um, chronic homelessness on a daily basis. And many of the people in, who are experiencing chronic homelessness do have some issues related to mental uh, illness or substance use disorders. And so we end up with, uh, I would argue, a biased uh, understanding or appreciation for the population as a whole. People in shelter, we don't see because they are in, in those shelter communities. And many of those uh, people are uh, women with children or families um, or, or other people uh, experiencing homelessness. And so we end up with a little bit of a tip of the iceberg uh, phenomenon in the sense that our, our appreciation or understanding of the phenomenon is shaped by a relatively small segment of that population. And so- and- Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Stephen.
0: I was just going to say, so when we're thinking about those populations, uh, think about the issues of mental health and and substance use, the causal error could arguably be going in both ways, right? It's like that may be one of those factors that in certain places may make one more likely to be homeless, but the act of becoming homeless and living on the street may exacerbate those problems,
1: right? That's, That's exactly right. And there's, there's plenty of research that we cite in the book demonstrating that and, and, and I'll say this casually when I when I speak to community groups that I would likely medicate as well if I were experiencing homelessness. It is a it is a terribly difficult experience. It is a traumatic experience, and um, you know drug use uh, could be a coping mechanism. And mental health issues are a logical consequence of living in crisis for an extended period of time. Uh, we know that abuse, sexual physical abuse is rampant within the community of, of people experiencing homelessness. And so the fact that mental illness would be associated with that experience should not surprise any of us. And so when, when I tell people that I, I, I fundamentally don't believe that this is a, a drug or mental um, illness problem, a lot of people raise their eyebrows and, and, and simply say, I, I don't believe it. And so what we did in the book is, Um, We gather data at the state level. um, And so this is the one part where we deviate from our cities because the national data is, is better at the state level. And we simply plot the rate of... Uh, of mental illness state by state compared to state by state um, rates per capita rates of homelessness. And what we see is there's a zero explanatory power. So it's not that we have in, in, in California or the state of Washington where we have high per capita rates of homelessness that we have a disproportionate number of people with either substance use disorders or, or mental illness. You know, what, we, what we describe in the book is that the consequences of those conditions are far more acute in situations where housing markets are tight and expensive. And, and we also know the causal area, as you have pointed out, is going in the other direction. And so, um, th- you know, th- the fact that we have homelessness may also help to explain why we have higher rates of, uh, or modestly higher rates of, of mental illness or, or drug use. And so the, the data is, is, is pretty uh, the data are pretty compelling about this relationship that it doesn't exist. And and the analogy that that I use when I'm giving um, public talks on this is, if drug use really were, if the opioid epidemic, for example, were really the driver of of homelessness, why don't we see massive populations of people experiencing homelessness in Arkansas and West Virginia and other places where we have really acute uh, drug crises? We we don't. Um, and so, um, you know, as we say in in the book, something else must be going on.
0: Uh, so similarly, if you would talk to us a little bit about about what you would say to those who who say, well, you know, really, when we look at at, at homelessness, what we're seeing is another way in which racial disparities play out, and this is really another way in which we see a problem of race.
1: Yes, well, there is little doubt that there are a huge uh, disp- there are disproportionate um, there's huge disproportionality in the population of people experiencing um, homelessness, and so black. Uh, and indigenous uh, individuals and families are far more likely to experience homelessness and um, and so that is is an absolutely important part of any discussion about uh, about homelessness but and I and I hate to even position it this way, but it's important to at least confront the, the story but but race doesn't cause homelessness just as gender doesn't cause. Uh, pay disparities in, in the labor market, right? There are forces that come together to, to produce um, disparities. And those might be uh, discriminatory, you know, segregation, outright racism, et cetera. And so what we plot in there is that that cities that have higher populations of, of, of um, African-American and black uh, individuals and families actually have lower rates of homelessness, Philadelphia, Detroit, Cleveland, et cetera, Chicago, for example. Um, homelessness thrives in, in places that are disproportionately white, and Asian, like Seattle and San Francisco. And so what, what we see here is, uh, and Seattle has terrible uh, disproportionality in terms of race, yet we have a relatively small uh, uh, a black population in, in Seattle. And so what we see is is it's not the number of people, just as it's not the number of people who are, are poor or not the number of people who are, who are uh, not white, it is the fact that these forces come together in an affluent white community like Seattle to produce Really troubling, troubling uh, disparities by, by race when we look at homelessness.
0: Uh, so let's take two more. Of of the explanations that you find less satisfactory, before we actually turn to what what you all do think is going on there. So, talk to us a little bit about arguments about the generosity of public assistance and the ways in which cities supposedly serve as welfare magnets and attract people who are or who would be homeless. Uh, and then also talk to us a little bit about whether it's a it's just ma- a matter of the weather. Sure. Well, the welfare magnet
1: um, story is interesting, and I I was first introduced to this idea when I was um, working on my PhD in Minneapolis and i was working with our local uh, county on issues related to homelessness and the narrative there was that it was all it was people coming from chicago for the relatively generous benefits uh, provided in by the state of minnesota and the city of minneapolis that was explaining homelessness and so i had some colleagues and i did some work on that and looked at it and we really found very little evidence certainly there were people moving from chicago to minneapolis but there were probably people from minneapolis moving to chicago and it was it was very difficult to identify any relationship between mobility and the problem of of homelessness and i and i kind of just Set that aside. I moved to Seattle. And one of my first meetings, someone said, you know, we're a magnet for homelessness in Seattle because of our generous benefits. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Where are they coming from? They said, well, mostly California. I said, okay. And then I was in a meeting with people from California. And they said, well, we're a magnet for homelessness. And I said, well, you can't be a magnet if Seattle's the magnet. And and we include a, a, a reference from a Washington Post article in, in, in the book in which Middletown, Ohio believes that they're a magnet for homelessness because of their generous benefits. And we use that, you know, uh, it, it's it's obviously in a slightly joking manner. But the, the point here is that everyone can't be a magnet. And the magnet argument seems to be fairly prevalent in a lot of places. And by definition, everyone can't be a magnet. And so I went into the literature on, on just generally welfare magnets, not necessarily specifically related to uh, to homelessness. And you don't see a lot of evidence to support that generous benefits draw people in to, to optimize their, their income, for example. And so when we thought about it from a, from a, a homelessness standpoint, we took two, we looked at two measures and certainly there are others that we could look at. Measuring local welfare generosity is, is difficult. I will, I will uh, concede that. Um, but what we did was we looked at homelessness at state level based on um, state variation in TANF benefits, which is the primary federal welfare program for typically women and children. And so we looked at rates of family homelessness and um, and TANF generosity uh, relative to the cost of living in those states. And we saw no relationship. There was no no suggestion that more generous benefits, uh, welfare or public assistance benefits would uh, create uh, or or cause a higher um, uh, homeless population. But we knew that other people might still say, but well, what about Seattle? What about San Francisco, et cetera? And so we, we took another stab at this, which was to look at low income migration uh, into cities. And we used census data to look at that. And what we saw was that there was there was no relationship at all. And so are there people below the federal poverty line moving to Seattle? Yes, there are. Um, but there's no disproportionality. And in fact, there's there's less a low-income migration into Seattle than in many other communities that have much lower rates of, of homelessness. And we also know from research that when, when s- census and, and surveys are done, the vast majority of people who are homeless in a community are generally from that community, right? So the idea that that, that Portland's issue or, or Seattle's issue is because all these people have, have migrated in in the last couple of years and now are experiencing homelessness is simply not supported by any data. Anecdote is really powerful, right? I met Joe on the street and Joe said he came here and that sticks in people's craw, uh, but the data just simply doesn't, doesn't support that. And so the idea of, of the magnet doesn't really hold water. The other thing that supports that argument is, is we know that um, residential mo- um, uh, mobility Falls uh, if you are uh, have very low income because mobility is difficult. Moving is is disruptive. It costs a lot of money. It's traumatic. You're leaving social networks. And if you are at the very end of your of, of your rope um, and experiencing homelessness, the idea that you can then optimize your outcome and go to T- Topeka, Kansas, because it's cheaper, uh,
0: is just doesn't hold water. And so that's You're also not likely to to actually possess the knowledge that would allow you to rationally conclude where the cheaper place to live would be, right? I mean, the knowledge or the resources. People will say, "Well, why right. don't they move to somewhere else?" And
1: I said, "Well, how? How? But, yeah, <laughs> are, are they going to buy a plane ticket? I mean, it's it just the reality is without resources, it's very difficult to to uh, change your your location. And so, yes, there's there's a knowledge as well as just a a resource constraint there, um, and then the other explanation that you you mentioned was was the weather one, which I hear frequently on the West Coast. It's our moderate weather, and therefore we have we have homelessness. And so um, this is an interesting one because it does depend on what type of homelessness you're looking at. If you look at total population of homeless uh, people, including sheltered plus unsheltered, there's zero relationship between weather and homelessness. And. And that makes sense. I mean, we always think about San Diego and L.A. when we think about warm weather and homelessness, but there are also plenty of warm locations, Phoenix, Dallas, Miami, that don't have disproportionately high rates of homelessness. We also have cold locations, Boston, New York, Minneapolis, that have relatively high rates of homelessness. And so that doesn't really hold. Where the story does hold is, I think, is related to our policy response in the sense that more moderate or temperate climates tend to have um, lower um, shelter capacity. And so the fact that we have a lot more unsheltered homelessness on the West Coast may be a function of weather in the sense that those communities have not built shelters because potentially they don't need to because it's not life-threatening if people are outside in in January. And so the weather certainly may and does have a relationship between that policy response, whereas we know um, basically through through litigation that started in New York, uh, many of the communities on the West Coast have shelter all policies, right to shelter policies which basically mandates the local jurisdiction to provide shelter for people. Uh, and part of that was in response to, to cold weather. And so the story of weather may shape the um, the composition of the population experiencing homelessness, but it doesn't change um, the outright or the total aggregate level of homelessness.
0: So terrific. So having dispensed with many of the most common explanations for homelessness, um, talk to us a little bit about what you do think Makes the most sense in terms of explaining variation from place to place. Talk to us about housing and how that plays out here. Yeah, so we um,
1: the the concluding of the empirical chapters, the third one looks at housing market conditions. And when we plot rents, just uh, contract median contract rent for communities, what we see is that there's a relatively strong relationship, and it's not perfect because the sh- social world is complex. And so we're not going to suggest that rents explain all variation in rates of homelessness. But the ex- but rents is a far more convincing explanation than anything else that we that we looked at. And so what we see is, in general, where you have expensive rents, you've got high rates of homelessness, and the converse is also true. And a related variable. Uh, is vacancy rates. And we know that vacancy rates drive rents. So these aren't independent variables. We're not suggesting that they are, but it's just two ways to look at the same phenomenon. And so generally speaking, if you give me a community with high rents and low vacancies, I could, with a fairly high degree of confidence, tell you that this is a community that likely is going to experience disproportionately high rates of homelessness when compared to to cities without those tight housing market conditions. And in, in, The the intuition behind this idea is that these individual drivers of homelessness or risk factors for homelessness become uh, far more challenging in a market with high rents and low vacancies. So the point is, is that in a place where rents are low and vacancies are high and you run into a difficult circumstance, you lose a job, your car breaks down, you have a health emergency, um, it's easier to figure it out in Cleveland through either public assistance, through familial support, social support, you can kind of figure it out. Whereas if you're living in a place with 3% vacancies and $2,000 monthly rents, the margin for error is terribly low. And and therefore, one single event, a precipitating event, as we discussed, can produce homelessness. And, and I fundamentally believe, and I, and I really think the data support the argument that this is really the the underlying driver of this phenomenon. And then we layer individual risk factors on top of that to understand who within a community is likely to experience homelessness.
0: Um, I I mean, I think that's just a lot. I mean, this is not news to you, but we've, we've for literally hundreds of years, right, been sort of competing against between sort of individual and structural level explanations, behavioral and institutional explanations of why people are poor and why people are homeless. And I think this sort of does a lovely way of, of, of altering our thinking to suggest that the exact same person facing the exact same challenges with income, with illness, with a broken down car can have radically different outcomes simply depending on where they live and what the local housing conditions are, right? That's exactly right. So- why? Why so much variation? Why do we have those places where housing is both expensive and unavailable?
1: Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, this is a fascinating, uh, you know, for, for students of urban economics, this is um, this is the part of the book that will be that will, um, I guess, be of interest to you. When I get people over the the hurdle of saying this is a housing market condition, people then in Seattle say, well, then so this is Amazon's fault, right? Amazon hired a bunch of people and they brought a whole bunch of people who make a bunch of money to Seattle and it drove prices up. And I'll say, yeah, that's certainly part of the story. It's hard to ignore the tech boom in San Francisco and Seattle um, in, in terms of the housing market. But what's interesting when we plot population growth. Uh, against homelessness in our sample, which covers uh, twelve years from when we counted, started counting in 2007 to 2019, there's no relationship between population growth and and homelessness, which is probably the most surprising statistic when I sat down no. to, to crunch these numbers. That one I, I had to run it a couple times because I, th- I thought I'd made a mistake. But once I dove into the cities, what I saw was that the Sun Belt has a lot of rapidly growing cities, cities are, or community, I should say communities, because some of them are some of them are counties. Um, but are growing at rates similar to what we're seeing in Seattle. So Charlotte, North Carolina is a good example. Mecklenburg County is growing as fast or just as, if not faster than Seattle over the last 12 years. But they have vacancy rates and rents that look very different. And so what's going on? Certainly they started potentially in a different place in 2007. But what we see is that the housing response, the housing supply response differs Uh, based on uh, housing supply elasticity, which is a fundamental concept in, in economics. And so what we see is that there are places where they accommodate growth by building a whole bunch more housing, and they might do that through sprawl or through relaxed regulations, which is a topic for another day. That may or may not be good. We could argue both sides of that. But we do know that in places with challenging topography, like San Francisco, mountains and water, and with very strict regulatory environments where it's difficult to to construct or develop housing, what we see is that housing supply lags demand. And so we have huge demand for housing as people move in. We don't construct enough housing. And so what we end up with is really a supply-demand mismatch with really, really high prices and low vacancies. And this has continued decade after decade. San Francisco is exhibit A for this for this challenge. It's incredibly difficult to build housing in San Francisco. And Seattle has actually done a better, far better job than than San Francisco has, but we still are nowhere near where we need to be. And so we end up with um, a huge dislocation in the market, which produces these these kind of obscene um, housing prices, and and what I say to people is that the same housing crisis that's making it difficult for you to find a house, or it's making it difficult for a third grade teacher in the Seattle public school system to find a home within an hour of where he or she works, is the exact same crisis that's producing homelessness. It's just a different consequence based on where you are, kind of in the income distribution, and so for communities like, like ours, we have to take a long, hard look at how are we going to respond to continued population growth. And, and if the answer is not, we need to figure out how to house all of these folks. Um, we are going to continue to live with with these really dire outcomes, um, in one of which is, which is uh,
0: homelessness. So, so perfect. Why don't you continue on there and, and talk to us a little bit about um, whether there's anything that you think we can do about this and if there is, what it would look like. Yeah. And so then we start getting into,
1: um, you know, debates about what's the policy response, local policy response, state and and national policy responses. There's levers we can pull at each level and some of which are are more likely than others. I would say um, one overlay in all this is that um, we have not gotten and I say we as a nation have not gotten the support from the federal government related to low income housing policy over the last 40 years that we need. That we've needed, and so uh, you know, one in four to one in five, depending on the statistic that you choose, of people who are eligible for for housing support from the federal government receive it. And so, unlike food stamps, where if you're eligible, you get it, uh, with housing support, only one in five. It's a lottery. And so, in essence, what's happened is the federal government has devolved or pushed these issues down to state and and local jurisdictions, and and housing is terribly expensive. And so, ultimately, um, local. Uh, governments have had to confront the idea of how do we then respond to a housing crisis without a lot of support from the federal government. Right. And that's, and that's difficult. And I think it helps to explain why we have not been as responsive as we could. And so at the federal government, I think uh, the easiest path to to greater support is, is making housing vouchers, which is the primary um federal program to support low-income households in in the housing market to make that universal in the sense that everyone who's eligible for a voucher would receive it. And there are a lot of discussions going on right now at a national level about about doing that. And and the Biden administration is considering expansion of of that program, which I think would be really helpful. But that alone is, is, in my opinion, not sufficient, especially in places with really constrained uh, housing supplies, and so for communities in California and and and, and Washington, where where I happen to live, um, we there also needs to be an understanding of how do we expand our housing stock, and and some of that is regulatory. I think zoning, and we're hearing a lot of discussion nationally about single family zoning and whether uh, what the impacts of that. I think there's a growing recognition that 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 those local policies have been exclusionary, and and also have frustrated efforts to respond to population growth, and so. The city of Seattle, for example, is 70%. At least the residential parcels are 70% of those are zoned single family. And so what I say to people, if Seattle continues to grow as it is and Amazon and Microsoft keep going, we cannot jam all this new population into 30% of the parcels that are zoned multifamily. It's simply the math doesn't work. So we have to think about um, our land use policy. And that that will have to change if these cities continue to grow and to accommodate the growth that we have. Um, And... And so I think there's there's a regulatory piece, and then and then the other side is is ultimately our cities, um, especially cities that are becoming global cities and, and big cities. The built environment simply has to change, and the idea that we can have a relatively um, uh, low level of density in, in an urban area it just won't won't work. And so I think what we're going to see, and it's either going to be it'll take a longer time or, or near time, but it'll be a painful process of transition that these cities will, will densify and they'll they'll have to. State and local governments certainly um, can play a bigger role in promoting the production of housing and either through subsidies on the supply side or, or whatever the case may be and there, are any number of tools that can be done there. But ultimately, there needs to be a greater understanding and commitment that the private market has a role to play, which is to, to, to build more market rate housing. We sorely need it in our community. And so I always cheer developers who want to build more market rate housing, but building market rate housing solely will not solve the the, uh, the the issue of housing precarity that we need to have greater commitments to the construction of affordable and supportive housing and some of and a lot of that will need some type of either nonprofit or or public subsidy because the math for the most part, simply doesn't work. Uh, when you look at land costs and construction costs in a place like San Francisco, i um, trying to build something that where you can charge $500 rent simply doesn't work. And so there, there is a there's a role for the private market. And there's a role for the public sector from the feds all the way down to to local cities and to ensure that we can construct the housing that we need. And if we don't do that, I just fear we're going to be on this 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 trajectory will continue uh, in very troubling ways.
0: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we've been listening to Greg Colburn talk about his new book, which is co-authored with Clayton Aldern, Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns from the University of California Press. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I think it is is an absolutely lovely sort of systematic evaluation of 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 typical explanations for how we make sense of people being unhoused, uh, and I think that almost any reader would benefit enormously from it. Uh, and thank you so much for Greg for Greg for giving us a little taste of it. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks so much, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity.